Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily Digest. This is our recap of all the LSAT Demon Daily episodes from the week. I'm Ben Olson, that's Nathan Fox. Together we're the founders of LSATdemon.com and our weekly podcast, Thinking LSAT. Today we have an email from Nathaniel. Says, uh, hello, my name is Nathaniel and I'm a big fan of the show and the demon. As a first-gen student, without many connections to folks in law school admissions, the information you provide is invaluable. I would love to hear your thoughts on two questions. Is there a point where UGPAs above 4.0 stop making a difference? My LSAC GPA is 4.28. Wow. Yeah, wow. But I want to sign up for a class next semester, my last semester of undergrad, that does not offer A pluses. Do you see the 4.27 I would end with as significantly different from my 4.28? Also, I took an official LSAT for the last, uh, sorry, for the first time last August and received a 177. Big thanks to the demon. I love LSAT and the LSAT and continue to play logic games and do sections for fun, so I am still well-practiced. Should I get greedy and consider taking the test a second time to improve my score? You answered a fellow listener about retaking a 175, so I wanted to know if there is a certain point where you do not recommend people retake their LSAT. Uh, Well, (laughs) so two questions, I guess, Ruth. Um, Should he worry about taking a class that doesn't offer A-pluses (laughs) he's like you know i'm only gonna get an a in that class uh so it might lower my gpa to a (laughs) 4.27 from a 4.28 and then the other question is should he retake his 177 to try to get a 178 179 or 180 what do you think well that gpa of 4.28 i've almost never seen anything like that before it seems like i'm guessing if a a plus is a 4.3 then Nathaniel has almost straight A pluses on his transcript, which is well. It, no, it impressive. has to be. It, it yeah. has to be. We could do the math, but I mean, <laughs> you, like he's saying that a single A would lower him from a four point two eight to a four point two seven. So it looks to me like he's gotten maybe two A's in his entire career. He's gotten two A's and then everything else A pluses. It, when I went to college, I don't think we even had A pluses at all. And Neither did we. I think it's school by school. Okay, and but I didn't know that LSAC, this seems like the type, like, what is the point of an LSAC GPA if they don't translate A pluses down to just straight A's for people? I don't That's get it. That's a great question. Well, it seems like Nathaniel, though, has been quite strategic here, right? He's saying, I don't know if it's a good idea to take a class that doesn't offer A pluses. So he's mostly only maybe intentionally taken these A plus option classes oh, in the past. I- I would say it's stronger than that. I think we can infer that he has clearly (laughs) only taken classes, (laughs) maybe a couple, (laughs) but he has clearly taken only classes that only offer A pluses. Yes. I mean, and and that's um, maybe that's just what they do at his undergrad. But I I just like it's I I don't I've people never talk about LSAC GPAs that are above 4.0s. That's just not a thing. We've been doing the Thinking LSAT podcast for eight years. Uh, we get emails every day. I've never he- even heard of people talking about this. This is like a brand new thing, I guess, that schools are offering A pluses and 
I, you know, I really, Ruth, you're you're with me. I really don't understand what the point is of LSAC doing their magic when they equate GPAs with di- from different schools. If some people are able to get A pluses <laughs> and some people aren't, yeah, that's yeah. A, I mean a good point. Right. I mean, I, I just, I really don't, I don't understand that. But shit, okay, it's in it's in Nathaniel's favor apparently. Great. Well, to answer the question then. Do I think it would be bad to drop to a a low, low GPA of 4.27? I don't really feasibly see how that could could hurt Nathaniel, because what schools tend to care about when it comes to their UGPAs, right, is the median and maybe the 25th and the 75th. That's what affects their public profile. And Nathaniel will be so far above the 75th of any school that I'm not sure that this is really a, a big concern in his case. What do you think? Well, I just called up the 509 report from um, your future alma mater, uh, Yale University Law School, on their 2021 standard 509 information report. Their 75th percentile UGPA is 3.99. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, 25% of the class at Yale has, I guess, a 3.99 or higher. Um, so that could be 4.0, could be 4.1, 4. 4.2, 4.3. It could be 5.0 for all I know. I mean, I, <laughs> who knows what's happening out there these days? Maybe you can get an A plus 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 or something and get even <laughs> higher than that. I don't know, but I right, like it's certainly not going to affect the 509 report, right? Whether he gets in with a three point or sorry, a 4.27 or a 4.28 is not going to change this report when you're already solidly in the 75th percentile or above they they're going to have no doubt that you can compete you're not going to lower their public profile uh, the gpa thing i would absolutely not worry about in the slightest i mean they they're going to be like holy shit 4.27 totally even they might be like wow i didn't even know that was a thing <laughs> <laughs> you know like, that's yeah. that's incredible so um I wouldn't worry about that. The LSAT thing, though, I feel like that's maybe, a, eh, I don't know. What do you think? Should he retake it? Um, I suppose that there's not going to be massive downsides to it. If you take it and you get another 177 or a 175, I don't think that that will really make your profile weaker. But I do think that maybe this is just me because I scored a 177. But I think past <laughs> that point, there we are getting a little bit into the area of diminishing returns. I'm not really sure that even the topmost school, especially with such a strong GPA, will, if you have a 180, say, see you as a completely different league of candidate. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at the 75th percentiles. You know, I'm looking at... So 75th percentile, though, for Yale is 177. So exactly 177 is is the number. So it, it, you know, you said earlier when we were before we recorded, you said you think that what schools are really looking at is their median and maybe their 75th percentile. Maybe. I mean, I'm no expert. Well, it is public record, right? Like Mm -hmm. we all everybody else in the world gets to see it. So we Mm -hmm. get to talk about it. So it's, you know, I could see why it stands to reason that they would look at that sometimes. And if their 75th percentile is 177, maybe they would like that to be a 178. And if he retook it and got a 178, 179 or 180, 
he potentially would be the guy who makes them have a 75th percentile of 178, 179, or 180. That's the way percentiles work, right? It's just like yeah. you're lining up all the people in a row. And Yale's not that big of a class, right? Uh, what do we got? We got 214 offers of admission, 150 people actually enrolled. That's kind of interesting to think about those 64 people who told Yale no. Mm -hmm. um, 150 people in the new class. And, you know, if you line them all up in a row, uh, Nathaniel might be the might Nathaniel might be the 75th percentile person. And then if he's a 177, their 75th percentile is 177. And if he's a 178, then their 75th percentile is a 178. And so it is possible that something like that would actually be reflected on this report. The GPA thing would never be reflected on this report. So possibly, possibly that matters. You agree that if he takes it again and scores lower, they're not going to care? I don't see why. I think there's sometimes are rumors out there. And this is, I think, something I heard one admissions officer maybe say on a podcast is that past a certain point, they may begin to question judgment or something like that. That is something that at least one admission officer has said once. Now, I don't know if you always want to be taking them at their word uh, versus looking at what their incentives are. Yeah. But I do think that it's, in in my view, I wonder if there might be better things at this point that Nathaniel could be doing with his time. He has a fabulous GPA, one of the best LSAT scores. Maybe there's something else he would want to be doing at this point. I think it would be okay to focus on other parts of his application as well. I totally agree. Well, if he was, if he did this, he would be doing it essentially for fun. I mean, he yeah. has, he has, and, and he has said, Again, he said, I continue to the the, the verb choice there is what really kind of like caught my eye. He said, I continue to play logic games. Did you catch that? I yeah. continue to he play sees them logic as an actual games. game, not well, not because a chore. they are. They're kind of yeah. like they're fun. You, you should eventually get to the point where you have fun with the games. And if you're if you're actually sitting there doing sections for fun, you know what like think about what the cost really is he's going to have to pay two hundred dollars to register for the test and he's going to take a couple hours on some random afternoon and take the test again which he's already done successfully he knows he can kill it and he's just going to kill it again and try to kill it even harder than he already killed it mm -hmm. <laughs> like just try to put yet another feather in his cap and it's like i don't know it, if there's no downside, I think there's very little upside. Yeah. And I think the downside would be primarily wasting your time or... $200. Yeah, $200. So what's that $200 <laughs> worth to you? <laughs> yeah. Like if you want to do it just for fun, just so that you can have that higher number on your personal record, um, yeah, you're you're doing it for yourself. You're not really doing it for anybody else. You're doing it for yourself. But if you want to do it, uh, you have my blessing. You know, I don't see any reason not to do it, but I don't see any big reason why you should like, especially if you're going to be like, well, I'm really going to have to study hard for this now and like gear up and not do other things like because th that's the real thing, right? It's the opportunity cost of like, well, totally. what other stuff could you be doing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe like thing. volunteer in your community or something like <laughs> <laughs> literally anything like is there yeah. some show you've been wanting to catch up on on netflix <laughs> yeah like it could be worth your better worth your time than than this um that said if you're doing it for fun and uh it's something you want to do i i don't 
I don't really see any reason not to. You know, I really want people to email. Um, can you email daily at lsatdemon.com if you can provide some intelligence regarding these LSAC GPAs that are above 4.0? Uh, this makes no sense to me. I don't, I just don't get it. I think people, some people are already aware of and mad about it. I think if I remember from my days on like admissions boards, you'll occasionally get a cranky person on there being like, it's so unfair. My school doesn't offer A pluses. And all these other people have this thing buoying their GPA that I don't. I don't know. I think LSAC, as much as they like to talk about equity, has made a bit of an oversight here about the fact that not everyone is getting the same opportunities. But I don't know what their rationale is. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like if you are if there is going to be such a thing as an LSAC GPA. Mm hmm. Right. Because they, they don't have to. I don't know that they have to have an LSAC GPA. I don't know if no, that requirement so. came from the American Bar Association or something like that. doesn't seem like it would really be a necessity to have an LSAC GPA. If there's not an LSAC GPA, then it's just completely Wild West and schools can report whatever they want to report. And there's mm -hmm. no kind of equating going on at all. But if you are going to do any kind of an equation uh, equation where you're like, oh, no, that's the LSAC GPA. We do that, you see, so that you can compare one applicant to another applicant to another applicant. <laughs> but some schools have 4.3s and some schools don't. Like if it, <laughs> your school, Ruth, if you had gotten literally the best grade you could get in every single class, you would have graduated with a 4.0. Correct. OK, well, then how is that possibly fair? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. I don't know. Maybe it's just not a high priority item since most people don't really have those top of the line GPAs anyway. So not enough people are complaining about it. I don't know. I guess. But the, the thing is, people do have those GPAs yeah. at the places where it really matters. Like the, <laughs> the this is like millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars that are changing hands every single year based on, you know, a few LSAT points and a, f and a few points of GPA. And, um, you know, it's admission to Yale or not admission to Yale. And uh, I don't know, you know, maybe the good folks at Yale already understand this and they look at that 4.28 and they go or 4.27 and they go, yeah, to us, that's a 3.98. Or a 3.97 could be as simple as that, where they're just like, yeah, yeah, your school offers A pluses. Um, you know, other schools don't. Who knows? I'm not <laughs> but, sure. <laughs> yeah, this is not an issue I ran into. I was a good student, but not that good of a student. <laughs> no, you were. You you didn't have the opportunity to get a 4.28. You just, <laughs> it was literally impossible. Um, Anyway, oh I hope that was helpful, Nathaniel. If anybody out there wants to vent about uh, <laughs> GPAs <laughs> above 4.0, uh, yeah, email daily at lsatdemon.com. We have a submission here that came in via uh, thinkinglsat.com, our brand new hot shit looking website. This is from Ahmad. You want to read it? Yeah, sure. Dear Ben and Nathan, in episode 345 of the Thinking LSAT podcast, you speculate about the possible reasons why someone who does not intend to apply to law school might take the LSAT. I don't remember that. I'm writing to share an additional reason I just learned over coffee with a friend. Some big consulting firms apparently treat the LSAT as an aptitude test and recruit high LSAT scores. My friend, for example, is taking the LSAT in June for no other reason than to get an advantage over peers in the recruiting cycle next year. It looks like McKinsey thinks you two are very smart cookies. 
Interesting. Okay. McKenzie. Yeah. I mean, that's a smart call. I would say it's a it's a good test to test certain skills. And it does you know. not test every skill, but it tests a nice portfolio of skills that are really useful in a lot of different ways. Problem we, solving. Yep. Language. Part, part of the reason why our team is so awesome is that we kind of like know everybody's LSAT score. <laughs> and yep. um <laughs> And so, you know, it's not like we ourselves only use LSAT when we're hiring, but it means something to us that you can achieve a high score on the LSAT. What What are the things, Ben? Yeah. Like as a, as a um, employer. Yeah. Uh, as a job creator, Ben. Yeah. What do you, <laughs> so I'm just making fun of ourselves, but um, <laughs> you know, what, what are those attributes that as a non-law school, what are, what are the attributes that a high LSAT seem to convey? So two things come to my mind right away. One is attention to detail. So we send out emails all the time. People get emails all the time. And it's like, do this, do that. Or here's the problem. Or here's what a student said. Or here's here's something that the developer said or whatever. And it's like people who have this attention to detail read and respond to the actual issue. Right? When we're dealing with people and they're they're responding to an issue that's not actually there, but they thought was there, we're all wasting our time. So that's one thing, attention to detail. Another thing is, I think just uh, problem solving and coming up with solutions that are, you know, seem creative or useful or helpful for the situation. I always say three things, and I think that these things do apply directly to um the people that we, that we hire, it tests your, yeah, Ben was already talking about this, but your communication ability in written English. Mm -hmm. And by, by the way, the vast majority of communication that lawyers do is in writing. Yep. That's what lawyers want to do. They want to get it in writing. They want to put it in writing. They want to see it in writing. (laughs) Like, let's stop talking about it. I want to see it in writing. And despite what you see on TV, right? It's yeah, like <laughs> so you need it in writing. So then two weeks from now when someone's or four years from now when someone's arguing about something, you say, Well, look, look right here. This is what well, we said. You can go do some showy argument in court, but in, in like, you know, the reason why you won that Supreme Court case was because of the documents, mm-hmm. not not because of whatever you said in the oral argument. Oral argument yeah. yeah. <laughs> um anyway, so it tests your ability to uh understand written english two it tests your logic ben talked about problem solving and you know the the ability to solve systems the ability to think about things holistically and to be able to come up with creative solutions i'm you're i my approach to logical reasoning is very creative my approach to the logic games very creative how can we solve these puzzles in LR, what kinds of arguments might this be susceptible to? How could this be better? How could this be worse? What kinds of outside, what kind of facts outside these facts on the paper might affect these facts that are on the page? And so your ability to sort of broaden the scope is, you know, understand everything in detail that's there, but then also broaden the scope and synthesize. I think it's a very good test for, for testing those abilities. So English, logic, and then the third thing is how hard you can work. 
Sure. Because it fucking means something that somebody shows up with a 175. It could be that it's just natural talent. It could be. But even I didn't score a 175 on the first LSAT I ever took. Like I sucked at the games. I had to show enough work ethic to get good at the games. Even me. And I'm like not a hard worker. Right. So it's like it. The, but you can work on something and that's critical. Right. Like even if you can't work on a whole bunch of shit, you have to be able to do your job and do the steps right. that are necessary for that. Yeah. There's no way I was not scoring in the 99th percentile on the LSAT if I did not improve my games. Like I have a lot of natural talent for reading and writing. Like I, my verbal skills are, you know, high. But that only carried me so far. And it's like, OK, great. So you ace reading comp and you pretty much ace logical reasoning without trying. OK, fine. But the games like I had to try. Mm-hmm. I had to buckle down. I had to sit down and do an hour or two every single day for however much, however long it was. And then eventually it clicked for me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I definitely, this is the first time I ever heard of McKinsey or the other consulting firms doing this, but I, it does to me make a hell of a lot of sense, more sense than using the GMAT, honestly, because the GMAT, you know, which is the, is used for business school admissions. Yeah. But the GMAT, is like how much half of it is math. And so it's just sort of like, well, how much math did you take in high school and college? And can you Mm -hmm. like brush up and review that math? It's just not as hard as, I don't know. I feel like the LSAT tests more useful skills, really. It's less about what you have remembered and more about what you can do to process the information you've been given. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, memorization is a form of work too. So like, the fact that you do remember the quadratic equation, you know, like that you forced yourself to memorize this abstract thing and know how to apply it to solve a sure system, you know, that, yeah, that does mean something for sure. But, um, yeah, the, the LSAT tests a lot of really useful skills. Not that you'll, you know, the vast majority of our listeners are going to use it to go to law school, but I do believe in it. I like a, as a, as a test, it tells me a lot. That one number can tell me a lot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell me everything, but it can tell me a lot. Well, look, it's been studied and it has a, along with UGPA, well, without UGPA, it has a 60% correlation. I'm not sure I'm fully saying that correctly, but it has a 60% correlation with your first year grades in law school, which is no joke. That's law school itself is a challenge. It's work. 60%? Where'd you get that number? I thought I remember something lower than that. Um, it might have been... No, I'm pretty sure because I, I think in combination with UGPA, it's 66%, but it was it accounted for the vast majority of that correlation. Mm. Maybe it's 55%, but yeah. it, it's it's a huge number. But it makes... It, it goes higher with UGPA, but not, <laughs> not as much as I anticipated. It makes perfect sense. You know, I think like applicants are like, well, no, but all I'm going to kill it in law school. You know, standardized tests are hard for me. Yeah. Okay. But you've never taken this standardized test before. And this standardized test is different. It's not, it's, it's not a memorization test at all. It's a skills based test that you have to learn how to practice, how to do this. And it's testing your ability to read carefully in English your logical abilities to sort of see how rules interact with each other. And it's testing how hard you can work at this damn thing, especially on the games, just like how much do you want it? And those three things in your one L year of law school, 
are like 100% critical. That's everything. That's the entire game. Yeah. Just even the process of law school. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. And, and law school is harder, by the way, than the LSAT is. It I is. mean, like talking <laughs> These to These court cases again. are longer and they're written in English that was... The written way worse. in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, you think that the reading comprehension on the LSAT is hard? Pfft. It's nothing. It's nothing. Have you ever seen a law book? Yeah. I mean, it, like the shit you're going to do in your 1L year is it Sarah Sarah thought that she was being hazed. <laughs> so, <laughs> Academic hazing. It's she like, said she thought she was in a blender and like that's yeah. somebody who scored whatever 99 170 whatever that sarah scored and had yeah. awesome undergraduate grades and was in harvard yeah and she's like oh i never had any idea how hard shit could be until i got there hmm. so master the lsat um yeah okay thanks ahmad for that submission yeah. that's awesome interesting right. here we have um a question that came through the demons ask button uh, to the support team, which I think they already responded to maybe, but we could jump in and offer some advice as well. Says, good morning. I was wondering if someone could give me some guidance on which package to purchase and how to use the platform lessons based on where I am in my LSAT journey. I took the LSAT in 2020 and scored a 162 and would like to retake. I haven't studied at all in the last two years and took a diagnostic test using your platform this morning but doesn't report a score from that diagnostic. Mm. I wanted to know where I should start using your resources. I have a default answer to this, which really doesn't ever change. Okay, go for it. I think that time is your most valuable resource. I know that one month of our live program will blow your mind as far as better ways of thinking about the test. Uh, tips on how to study, how to schedule your time, what to focus on, what not to focus on, and just some foundational fundamental ways of thinking about the test. Yeah. That you can get in one month. And I've just seen so many people struggle with other platforms or struggle to get started and make no progress. And then after one month, I mean, it's actually like in the first week of using live, they're like, oh my God, I'm up eight points already. And I totally understand. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you know, you could have, you can get lots of great help at the lower levels of subscription. Yeah. But if you're only going to do one month of live, you should do, it should be your first month. Hmm. Because I think that when you then downgrade, to which you can do at any time. Yep. I mean, you don't even have to wait till the end of the month. You can, you can email help at LSAT demon and you can go up and down in the subscription levels whenever. Yeah. And I, I just believe that you're going to make the most out of your study time after we've gotten our claws into you for a month. And, uh, so I, I think you can get the entrant, you can get the, sorry, you can just get that instant, like now you're a better LSAT student mm -hmm. because you did that one month of live. And then from there, you know, many people decide to stay live. Other people go down to premium or basic and self-study for as long as they want. But your self-study is going to just be so much more efficient 
you know, even if it was only 10% more efficient, I would give the same advice. But I think in many cases, it's like 100% or 500% more efficient. Oh, absolutely. You're doing what you should be doing. Yeah, you're doing what you should be doing. Um, it's we were talking about this on an earlier episode, but pick up a phone and call, right? Talk to someone. You're sitting there talking to some teacher in class, and it's like, oh, you're gonna put things together that you may spend much longer just trying to search for in the you know written <laughs> sphere. It's like talk to somebody. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer. I mean, it, 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 like, hey, it. I will acknowledge that this is in my financial best interest to give you this advice. You know, like I'm advising our most expensive option. You, you know what, though? I'm also not advising tutoring, <laughs> which is... No, like, that's tutoring true, is, is more expensive. More in my financial best interest, and I, w- I would recommend not to do that. No. Unless you have like unlimited money. But I, I always find myself talking people out of tutoring. I, no. I think that you should, I think you should do a month of live. I think you should come to class. I think you should come to Ben's class and come to my classes, go to Matt's awesome logic games classes, go to Becca's amazing reading comp and logical reasoning classes. Go, you know, meet our teachers and let those teachers guide you to your best study plan and just get some like instant better understanding of the test. I think yeah. you'll find it motivating. I think you'll then be better equipped to, you know, just stop feeling like you're banging your head against the wall. And I think you'll be I think you'll be the most successful if you meet us and like engage with us that way uh, sooner rather than later. So I would always recommend people just try one month of live and see how it goes for you. This one comes to us, Ben, from uh, a recently departed and will be sorely missed uh, Demon Live student. She killed the LSAT. Oh, and, awesome. And uh, so is no longer with us. But um, she specifically emailed this. She wanted you to talk about it. Okay. Uh, regarding the Demon dashboard. Okay, and on the Demon dashboard, by the way, you have a score from zero to 100 for each of the three sections for logical reasoning, for logic games, and for reading comprehension. And as you do better in each section, the Demon gives you a higher and higher score. How the Demon determines whether you do better or worse is simply a function of whether you got a question right, how hard it was, and how long it took you to answer it. Um, So this Correspondent says, I'm currently at 93 out of 100 in logical reasoning, 64 out of 100 in logic games, and 73 out of 100 in reading comp. However, I have spent exponentially more time drilling logic games than reading comp or logical reasoning. Uh, With little study time remaining until my April test, how do you, Ben, recommend that I proceed? I know Nathan keeps his eyes on the road ahead and not on the dashboard. I, that's funny. I have been getting untimed perfect game sections lately, but only on level three or lower difficulty under timed conditions. She didn't say sections. She said perfect. Oh, did I said section? Oh, okay. Untimed perfect game scores. She can work through a game untimed and get it perfect, but only on level three or lower. Okay. In logical reasoning, I only drill level five questions and get about 80% of those correct. Maybe reading comp is where I should drill and stick to time sections for logic games and logical reasoning. You know what? I'm wrong. 
she can do a section perfect. She can do all the games perfectly untimed. She says when she does it under timed conditions, then she only gets level three or lower difficulty. Perfect. Okay. Um, well, I, so what's missing here is how you're doing on time sections. Look, the, the demon is going to give you an estimate of where it thinks you are in each of these sections. And it looks like you're struggling more with games and it almost sounds like you maybe are. I mean, you're doing a perfect section, but it's untimed. How do we know how you actually do on a time section? Um, yeah, this is why I dislike the dashboard. I, I, I just, I mean, it's there because it provides people with some measure of how they're doing. It's an easy numeric thing. Some people find it motivating, you know, we've got it, but it's like, but it, it, I feel like it just takes people's eye off the ball where it's like, okay, what are you scoring in a timed LSAT? What are you scoring on the three different sections? The, the plate, where are you losing your points on a timed section? That's the indicator of where you should turn your attention. Cause she's now looking at this and going, Okay, so, well, maybe RC is where I should drill. What does she say? She wants to drill RC and then stick to timed sections for LG and LR. Okay, like, yeah, this could be taking her eye off the ball, and it sounds like it is in this case, and that's unfortunate, but that's assuming that this data or this this indicator is wrong. Like, if her if her time sections are are lower in games, she's talking about an untimed game section. What what do we do with that? Like, I don't I don't even know what to do with that. No, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure why she's even doing untimed sections of games. We didn't tell her to do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not you, even an option. In that's the, the whole point is to drill. Dr when you're drilling, you're untimed. So drill games untimed. That's your untimed practice. The demon will take note of how long it takes you to solve those games. That's how it knows what difficulty to give you. Yeah. And, but, but otherwise I don't see the point of doing untimed game sections. I mean, she's clearly not good enough at the easy games, right? She, she needs to get better at the easy games. So drilling games is the way she's going to get better at the easy games. Yeah. I don't like, I, and she should do timed sections every once in a while just to get a sense of where she is. But if let's say she's only getting, you know, 16 points on the games out of 23. Yep. If she's only getting 16 points on the games, it's not because she's not good at the hard games. It's because she's not good at the easy games. Yeah. Because she's not even getting to the hard games or she shouldn't be. She's just taking too long on the easy games and the, the drilling tool should be giving her the easy games. Which is what it's doing actually. Cause it, it yeah. decides what games to give you based on this number right here. And it's saying, okay, well <laughs> you're not fast enough yet. So I'm going to give you some more of this until you can figure out how to do it correctly. She's probably not spending enough time setting up her games. Well, yeah, <laughs> everybody who's not good at the games, it's because they don't set the games up well enough. Or they're, and, well, and I would specifically say they're probably not spending enough time on that, right? They feel like right. they are, but they're not. And it's like, it's okay. Oh, it's, Take longer because you'll actually go fast. It's almost always like stopping one, one step short, right? I mm -hmm, have, uh, mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm. students now share their diagrams with me um, in class. And then I share them back out to the class. And that it's been a fun way of like reviewing logic games in, sure. in my classes recently. And um, it's like, there's one guy in particular that I'm thinking of every time it feels like he sets it up right. 
And then he's just at the point where he's about to make the key inference. And then he just chooses not to make the split. He writes down the rule instead of Mm. like splitting based Mm. on that rule. And then he just doesn't unlock the game. And, you know, frequently he answers all the questions right. And he feels pretty good about himself because he got them all right in 10 minutes. Yeah, that was me like five years ago. And it's like, yeah, but I wrote down the rules. I split them up and then it's like, oh, okay, right here. That's, that's good enough. I don't want to just go crazy with this world (laughs) thing. And so it works, but it's not as fast. Cause when you do unlock that last key, man, everything is like answered. I was talking about this last night class. Exactly. Yeah. What can can they ask? They they can't ask me anything now because I've solved the whole system. It's right here on the whiteboard or on my paper. Um, I don't you care what they the ask. They can ask me words. 10 questions. Yeah. You've solved the system. You know how the system works. And at that point, you could write the fucking test. Right? You could. You could write the questions. I mean, it's like, you know, you're really good at the games when you read a question and you go, oh, they could have made that question a hell of a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Like they could have asked this and this and this other thing. And instead they just asked for that. Oh, man. Okay. Easy question. So... Anyway, this student, uh, let's give some advice and wrap it up. I I would actually like to hear students tell me my practice sections, my practice tests, those scores are inconsistent with the dashboard. If it is, then there's a problem and I'd like to tweak it. But my guess is that they're not far off because this is just taking, (laughs) it's just taking the data from people who are taking time sections and drilling. It's like, I I don't know how else. Yeah. We could change it. She's like specifically talking about how to how to balance her drilling versus her timed sections in each of the three topic areas. And it's like, I don't know, do do some drilling and do some timed sections in all of them. But spend more time on the section that you're the worst on. So she has been spending a ton of time on games. That's great. Um, reading comp is still an area for improvement. Seems like she could spend some time there. What do you have for us today, Nathan? Well, this came from, so Dylan is, uh, for people who don't know, Dylan is a super valued member of the LSAT demon team. He responds to ask button requests, uh, on every single question. There's, I I guess we could, one way to think about it is that there's 10,000 ask buttons within the demon, right? Because there's an ask button Mm -hmm. on every single question and that ask button goes to Dylan's team. Um, that it's a team of LSAT tutors, uh, everybody who scored 99th percentile on the official LSAT. What did you score, Dylan? Uh, 177. Yep. And um, so Dylan is there responding to questions about individual LSAT questions. And you've been doing that now for how long? Uh, I, I'm not sure. It Last summer, for sure. I don't remember what month exactly, but it's been a while. Let's I've definitely it, gotten better. Yeah, nine months. And you've been doing like... If this last week is an indication, you've been doing 15 or 20 a day for nine months. So, you know, there's like you've probably done by now thousands of these uh, written responses to students. So you've learned uh, in kind of a unique way. You've learned a lot about LSAT along the way. But this came from one of our students and we'll, we'll keep them anonymous. But it said, uh, hey, guys, my question is strategy based. I was wondering if I could get some advice. When I took this practice test, I got to passage four with about five minutes left. 
I've been in the same predicament for several practice tests with five minutes left. I read the first and last paragraph and try to answer what I can. Would other strategies such as skimming be more useful with limited time? And you wrote a response that uh, we thought was super useful. You you did a football analogy. Mm-hmm. Why don't you t- yeah. walk us through that? Well, the first thing that struck me as odd about this request is that getting to the last passage with five minutes left is really good. Like, it's not all the way there, but think of how many students don't even get to the fourth passage or they get to the fourth passage as like time is running out. So if you have five minutes, that is a great place to be uh, when starting the last passage, but it's not quite there. And this is kind of the analogy that I used. It's like improving on RC is moving the ball up the field in football, uh, American football. I don't know how many international <laughs> listeners there are. Yeah, uh, NFL. But yeah, the goal is to go score a touchdown and get seven points. Just like an RC, the goal is to finish all the passages and get all the questions right. So the point that this listener is or demon student is at, he's so close. He, he gets to the fourth passage with five minutes left. He only needs to be a little bit quicker on each of the previous three passages to have enough time to really give the fourth passage a good shot. But when he's asking for like, how do I take a shortcut? Like, just read the first and last paragraph or skim the whole thing. Yep. I analogize that to he got all the way to the five-yard line. So he's five yards away from scoring a touchdown. And now he's asking me, what's the best way to kick a field goal? Or, you know, get three points instead of the seven. Mm-hmm. When he worked all the way up to get a touchdown and all that effort, and he's just trying to settle for, for less. So that was what I wrote back to him. And I think Brittany and you uh, liked that analogy. Uh, So here we are discussing it. Yeah, it's a pretty common thing that people, they're like, well, but, but what do I do in those last five minutes? Because I always find myself in this spot. And it's like, yeah, okay. But listen, you've already spent six out of seven of your minutes, right? You've spent 30 out of 35 minutes. Or I guess if you're an accommodated student, the ratio changes a little bit. But even there, it's even more extreme. It's like, well, I don't care what you're doing. If you have 53 minutes or if you have 70 minutes on the section, then those last five minutes, like that's time for you to answer one question. And even for people who are doing the test in normal 35 minute sections, you you shouldn't be worrying about that. You should be Mm -hmm. worrying about how to deepen your comprehension of the passages in the first place so that you can more quickly dismiss wrong answer choices so that you can blaze through the questions, you know, never think about blazing through the passage and read the question itself carefully and read the answer that you're going to pick very carefully But the wrong answers, that's where we're going to pick up speed because you're going to read two words of some of the wrong answers and just know they're wrong. And and that's how to go fast. And so when this question comes in from a student who's like, well, what if I just in the last five minutes, what if I just skim or read the first paragraph and the last paragraph and then try to answer some of the questions? It's like, (laughs) that's just not what we do here. Mm -hmm. Like we're 
we only ever talk about strategies that are related to understanding. So what my response would be, uh, and I like your football analogy, because it's like, listen, we teach you how to score touchdowns. I don't give a shit what you do about the field goals. What I would do, though, I mean, I would say, hey, if it's if the five minute warning has popped up, you should guess on all the remaining questions. That'll take you 10 seconds. D, 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 D. Go back to what you were working on. And if it's a brand new fourth passage, I think you have to read the passage carefully and then try to get one or two of the questions correct. I do not think that any kind of gimmicky skimming. I mean, there are so many passages. If you read the first and last paragraph and then tried to answer the main point question, I feel like they write wrong answer choices intentionally designed to try to catch people who are doing that bullshit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like an underlying assumption of this question is that, that they're not going to improve between now and when they actually take the test. Mm. But they control how much time that is. Now, that might mean yeah. being flexible on which cycle you're applying and which test you're taking, but you're not ta you don't have to take the test tomorrow. You don't need to go in at this current level of preparedness. And one thing I think uh, about the LSAT demon that sets it apart besides the overall philosophy is that I feel like this is the gunners LSAT prep company. Hmm. Like we're not the ones that settle for less that you know where to find that curricula. We're the gunners who are like going to get every point we can. And, you know, obviously they get a bad rep in law school, but for the LSAT, that's the game. Uh, but they also don't like they, they, I think people think that gunners yeah. get a bad rep in law school. You know what gunners also do? They get A's. <laughs> like uh -huh. they, they, they get, um, they, they get on campus interviews. They mm -hmm. get, now I'm not talking about the guy who thinks he knows everything and raises his hand and then gets B's on his, for, you know, gets, gets like a C on his final, like that dude in the first semester you never see him again in the second semester because he just learns that he doesn't, he's not the shit. He thought he was, he's mm -hmm. not. That's not the gunner I'm talking about. The real gunners, they might not even be raising their hand all the time. They're just like, they did all of the preparation. They have already been working on practice exams from the like very first month of class. They're, they're like doing practice final exams for that class. You know, yeah, we're, I did the reading for this week. I also started working on <laughs> practice exams for three months from now. And, you know, they're like in study groups and they're talking about these issues and they're reading supplementary materials and they're like really working their asses off. And uh, yeah, they're they're fully prepared. I I like mm -hmm. this idea. Um, yeah. LSAT prep for gunners. I mean, I, the I only marketing like part of it that doesn't work is the association people have with that word in law school. Cause you're absolutely right. Like they get results, but people, they don't, they don't see those results. They see the kid that won't shut up in class, which is not who we're talking about. No, that's not the guy I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about the one who's going to eventually get A's on all their exams. You know, mm -hmm. that that's the one. And, and yeah, that's, Right. I don't want you to get a B on the LSAT. Mm -hmm. that, that's not what we're about. I, I, like 
there's other prep out there that might teach you some gimmicky strategy for skimming and getting from a 150 to a 157. But I feel like if I helped you get from a 150 to a 157, all I'd be doing is giving you the rope to hang yourself on. Like you'd, you'd end up going to some shitty school. You'd end up paying way too much money to go there. And I want like I'm in I'm in the business for the long haul. And like what I want is I want you guys to go become like Supreme Court clerks. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I want yeah. you guys to go become law firm partners, judges. I want you to be a fucking senator because mm-hmm. if you do that, then you will remember where your LSAT prep was and you'll send people back. And I, I, I just, I, I'm not here to like help you barely squeak in and create some unsatisfying legal career, right? I don't want you mm-hmm. to impoverish yourself struggle in law school, struggle with the bar exam, struggle to find work, wash out. Mm -hmm. I I would rather you wait and fully prep for the LSAT, hit a home run. Sorry, mixing too many (laughs) metaphors, but yeah, Yeah. that's what I want. Like I want touchdowns. I don't, I don't, Mm -hmm. I definitely don't want the field goals. Something that I thought was a platitude when I was starting out was when people would say, this is the first step of your legal career. Mm. And I'd be like, I am a college student. I'm studying for this test. This is not my legal career. But the more I understood the test and the role it plays in admissions, I'm like, well, your legal career is advocating for people and helping them navigate this legal system that we have. Law school admissions, you are advocating for yourself. You are your own client. And you are navigating the system of law school admissions. And I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but I've talked to a lot of them, obviously. And I feel like you would agree that like the qualities of a good lawyer, like one of them is they will do literally everything in their power to help their client's chance of winning. Like if they have, if there's a motion they can file that even increases their chance of winning by 1%, they will do it. And here, so you're talking about advocacy, right? And advocacy, people always think about uh, arguments, Mm -hmm. which is part of advocacy. But a big part of arguments, the foundation of arguments is evidence. And it's a critical part of being an advocate to marshal the best evidence you can. And lawyers do not frequently have the luxury of manufacturing evidence. Now, I guess that's partially what you're doing when you go get witnesses and bring them into court. You know, you're you're building a record, right? You're creating mm-hmm. evidence. And um, on the LSAT, you have the opportunity to create evidence in your own favor. Like Dylan, you what did you would you remember what your first practice test was and how long you studied and yeah. all that? So I didn't take a cold diagnostic because I didn't even know that was a thing when I started. So I had a little bit of knowledge. And my first test was about 160-ish. Yeah. And studied for about a year. Wow. I I saw people above me that were going along the same path. What they would do is they would just start, take a class like their second semester junior year, not do as well as they hoped. And I thought, well, I'm going to give myself more time. I'm going to start the summer before junior year and just have that whole year to study. So then I can take it over the summer or retake in the fall 
or whatever it is. And I ended up taking about 30 practice tests, not counting like individual sections. I mean, sitting down and doing a full five section test, which is what yeah. it was at the time that I was studying. Back in the day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I mean, so 160, not really a cold diagnostic. Your cold diagnostic probably would have been somewhere in the 150s. And mm -hmm. you end up like with the right kind of prep, with the right kind of strategy, you end up improving from there by 20 points, basically, to all the way up to a 177. And what you've done is you have created this super powerful piece of evidence yeah. that cannot be argued with. Like nobody can say shit about that. The law schools mm -hmm. are just going to be like, well, that's above our 75th percentile. Great. Or, you know, if it's like Yale, it's like, oh, well, that's our 75th percentile. Great. <laughs> Perfect. Uh -huh. And I, I'm pretty, I feel like I'm pretty self-aware that 177 is why I'm going to Harvard. Like if I set a goal score at the very beginning, maybe I would have said 170, but I may have thought that was a reach at the time, but I didn't. I, my goal was to get the highest score within my capacity, whatever that may be. And I'm very fortunate that that turned out to be a, a very high score. But if I had, if I applied with a 170, Harvard wouldn't have even looked at my application. I don't have an interesting story. I'm, you know, middle class white kid. They have enough Jews in law school, so I don't really <laughs> add diversity. It, it, it's really that 177 that unlocked the key. I mean, my GPA was good. It was slightly below median, so technically a splitter. Uh, so. Really, I mean, can't thank you guys enough because the LSAT demon is why I, I scored this well. It it really is your philosophy yeah. that resonated Ugh. with me and helped me succeed. You're welcome. You did all the work. I mean, you you're the one who like busted your ass for a damn year to to create this super powerful piece of evidence. But yeah, I mean, like people come to us with like well, I have bad grades. Should I write an addendum to explain <laughs> that? And also my LSAT isn't that good. So I could write about whatever. And it's like, well, that's one way to advocate for yourself. But a far better way to advocate for yourself is to demonstrate how smart slash hardworking you are mm -hmm. by doing, I mean, I just really believe that anybody can improve. Like, I don't I don't think it's a stretch to say that, like, yeah, pretty much anybody can improve by 15 or 20 points on the LSAT. Mm -hmm. it, it might take a while, but it will change your life. Like, I agree, Dylan, yeah. with a 167 and mediocre grades, you're not going to Harvard. I mean, you'd be an exception, right? Yeah. You don't want to be an exception. You want to go in through mm -hmm. the front door. Yeah. And I, I truly think I got in the easy way. I think the LSAT is the easy way. The hard way, the people who don't have like the LSAT score and GPA, who have these amazing life stories where they face like real adversity and like set up nonprofits and like actually change the world already. That seems hard to me. I, I'd rather just study yeah. for this test. Well, everyone is trying for those those few spots of like, mm -hmm. well, we're making exceptions, right? I mean, if you look at the yeah. 509 data, the GPA and LSAT ranges are narrow. And so, yeah, they are making some exceptions. Like there are 25% of the class that are admitted with LSATs below their 25th percentile. 25% of the class has a GPA that's below their 25th percentile. That's what 25th percentile means. Mm -hmm. 
So this is like the 25% of the class that they're willing to make these exceptions for. But the lazy route is is to say, well, I'm going to, that's one, one of those spots. That's for me, right? So you're calling mm-hmm. that the hard way. But I, I do think it's the hard way because it's a vastly more competitive way. Mm-hmm. Like everybody thinks they're going to just take the shortcut. Everybody's like, oh, yeah. no, just let me in the back door. It's like, yeah, OK, uh-huh. g- denied. Like they, mm-hmm. You know, Harvard denies 90 percent of the applications that they receive. And sure, they want you to apply. And, you know, yeah, sure. There are some people who get in via that route. But Dylan, you know, you took the I, I agree with you. It's the easy. It's the widest door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, in that sense, it's the easiest, but you do have to bust your ass to you know get yourself through mm-hmm. that door. Thanks for listening to the LSAT Demon Daily Digest. You can email daily at lsatdemon.com if you'd like to ask us a question or share some LSAT or law school admissions news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.